Hello and welcome to your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evikiori and this week we are talking about how political the Eurovision Song Contest is, why this year's Eurovision is a good depiction of the European politics, which are the traditional allies that we will see supporting each other during the big final, which countries are not participating and what political messages are conveyed with the songs. We are also talking about the vision of French President Emmanuel Macron for a European political community. Is this new community a shortcut on the road to full EU membership? Or maybe is it just a waiting room? What to expect from it and why is it important for the EU? So, yes, Eurovision. It's always a delight to watch mostly for its uh, on-stage performances, but this year we will follow the event with a twist, a political twist. To break down the politics of Eurovision, I'm joined by two special guests from Euractiv's editorial team, Gerardo Fortuna, who's fortunate enough to be in Turin for the big final, and Vlad Maximov, who has a good understanding of the European Song Contest and its politics too. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. How are you today? Well, I'm super glad to be here, Evie. I actually was the reporter from Euractiv covering how Eurovision was cancelled over COVID. So, and now we are having special dedicated coverage to the ESC. We even have a journalist who's here with me in this room today like going. Exactly. I am very, very jealous. Anyhow, so it seems very full circle to me, you know. Now, the European festival has always been political. However, this year it seems like it will be more political than ever. Why is that, Gerardo? It has the potential to be the most political ever. As you said, I mean, we're talking about um, an event where politics merge with the uh, with the performances. Also because, I mean, all the artists are representing uh, a country, uh, actually the, the national broadcaster of the country, but yes, it's it's basically reproposing uh, some kind of um, dynamic, uh, very uh, similar to, you know, I wouldn't say war, but again, at least the confrontation with the with uh, many countries. Yeah, the, the reason why it might be uh, a little bit more political this time it's because of of course what uh what happened in ukraine and the uh, invasion uh the russia's invasion of ukraine which has uh, for, for instance uh led the organizer the european uh, broadcaster union uh to to actually um exclude uh russia for, uh, for, for from this uh, contest this year and uh, at the same time ukraine is kind of considered the winner, let's say, uh, surfing on the wave of uh, emotion and uh, what's happening, of course, in the uh, war areas. So it's going to be very difficult for um, the organizer, but in general, for, 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 for who, um, who who's doing this uh, competition to keep separate uh, politics from, uh, from the actual music performances this year. Every year we do have some traditional alliances, I would say. Have they changed this year or should we expect the same voting strategy? 
Yeah, I, there's been actually tons of research in this, and uh, the changing methodologies uh, across the years actually show different results. There have been some studies that suggest, you know, well, actually, if we control for everything, then the political of nature of the vote is not that important. And then as um, methodologies kept improving, uh, one thing that there seems to be a clear consensus on is that there are voting blocks, and it's, you know, it's defined a lot by shared uh, borders and geography and also history. Um, but actually, this year, um, I agree with Jardo, this, uh, this year's Eurovision really has the potential to be one of the most political uh, ones ever, but interestingly, perhaps even outside the competition. So a lot of the votes that, you know, I would be sitting here and telling, uh, you know, our listeners to, to watch out for are not going to happen because some of those countries are not participating this year. So, um, you know, we know Russia was not allowed to participate because uh, the EBU, the European um, Broadcasting Union, who's organizing all of this, um, said it could bring the competition to disrepute. Um, but that is just one example. Another one is, uh, you know, uh, as they say here in the Euro bubble, the country I know best, Hungary, is also not participating, um, uh, not the first year in a row, um, due to what some critics call potentially uh, uh, Hungarian authorities finding it too LGBTQ plus friendly. Uh, you know, the Hungarian media accounts. Other issues there. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Well, they they have vehemently denied uh, it having to do anything with LGBTQ rights. They said they wanted to focus more on uh, on promoting national music, though it's still unclear to me personally why that cannot be done at a Europe-wide stage. <laughs> Um, but yeah, th that is to say, a lot of the a lot of the votes that otherwise would have been interesting to to watch out for, like for instance, Poland and Hungary, that are now kind of experiencing a split over uh, their Russia politics, are we're not going to be able to see that because those countries are simply not participating. Yes, maybe we will see some changes in the voting of the Eastern European countries, but I think we will still see some countries voting for their traditional allies. Uh, for instance, Cyprus will give its 12 points to Greece. Albania will most likely give its 12 points to Italy, as it does for the past years. San Marino too. Spain and Portugal will also support each other and uh, so on. Now, now that you mention Cyprus, uh, uh, it's actually quite interesting um, because we had some, um, uh, you know, the uh, influence of uh, another invasion as, uh, as uh, um, you know, the, the, the Turkish one of Cyprus um, that had a huge influence on, uh, on um, two editions, actually, of the Eurovision because in 1975, um, uh, Greece basically withdrew uh, its entry uh, in protest over over this uh, uh, Turkish um, invasion, and the day the year after, uh, the Turkish TV basically banned the Greek performance because it was um, uh, perceived as uh, as uh, making reference to the to the situation in Cyprus. Uh, but again, just to make an, a, a parallel. Um, it's interesting because in this case, you have two countries that are bickering, let's say. Uh, but what happened this time is actually the organizer who took a stance, as Vlad was saying before, uh, who took a stance excluding uh, Russia. So it's uh, even in terms of, um, uh, we can say that it's, it's a bit of a novelty that uh, it's no longer a, an arbiter, like a, a referee trying to 
um, find a compromise between uh, uh, and trying to avoid any political uh, involvement or or any political influence on the competition. But uh, this time it's a bit uh, different, and and this is also why uh, it should be the most political uh, edition ever. Yeah, absolutely. And just coming back on, on piggybacking off of that, of course, Sevi, you're you're absolutely right. The voting blocks that I mentioned are, are still very much there. And ex-Yugoslavia is one of these voting blocks as well. You know, you mentioned uh, we've been talking about Greece and uh, Cyprus, but Greece insofar as it is part of the Balkan Peninsula uh, uh, is, is also interesting from the point of view of North Macedonia, which also has been having a tough time at the uh, and the Eurovision uh, the past couple of years. As we know, in the European context, you know, um, North Macedonia is kind of being blocked uh, by uh, from starting its EU accession negotiations by a veto from um, Bulgaria over shared language and history. And actually, this uh, this particular standoff has been going on for uh, for quite a while uh, at the Eurovision itself, North Macedonia's uh, entry last year um, with uh, ethnic Bulgarian Vasil Garvan Liev uh, got a lot of backlash back home because uh, the music video um, uh, involved some uh, Bulgarian symbology, and so he got a lot of backlash um, because of the heightened tensions uh, between North Macedonia and Bulgaria. Currently, Bulgaria also stepped in, said it was, uh, you know, it was essentially a hate crime <laughs> against uh, Bulgarians. Um, anyway, so <laughs> Skopje has been experiencing a lot of problems with its entries, and even this year they already didn't manage to escape it. Right, lots of drama there. This year there is a national outrage with their artist Andrea because uh, while she was taking some pictures, uh, she threw the North Macedonian flag on the floor, something that caused uh, national rage because something like that is considered an insult to the country's national symbol. It's still controversial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was forced to apologize, and MRT, the national broadcaster, essentially almost threatened to to pull out of uh, broadcasting Eurovision altogether from twenty twenty three. It's also some kind of offense, like in the legal system. Yeah, they said that. Yeah, they said that it also goes against national laws. Yeah. Though I don't really understand how that were uh, that would work legally, jurisdiction wise. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, North Macedonia has really, really um, been experiencing, uh, you know, one scandal after another at, at Eurovision. But uh, interestingly, you know, Bulgaria did not qualify for the final. So uh, again, I would have told you, oh, watch out for uh, for uh, for the show off at Eurovision between Bulgaria and North Macedonia. No bickering there this year, Vlad, uh, because both Bulgaria and North Macedonia are not in the finals. But maybe another example of how political Eurovision is, is last year's uh, participation of the UK. The rest of the European countries didn't give a single point to the UK. Was it the song? Was it politics? What was it? Well, I think, uh, first of all, it's important to mention this is not the first time uh, the UK finished last that also finished last with zero points i think yes uh with zero, zero points point. i think yeah zero point yeah i think it's, it's a bit of uh, the first time ever but i'm not sure <laughs> yeah i don't quote me on that either but it's certainly the last two eurovisions had fi- finished last i i was checking so yeah gerardo I, I, that's what i was going to ask you with your musical talent do you think that's uh, that that's a political statement or it's a one off it's a, wow. 
it didn't meet the standard of the songs at Eurovision. Like it seems like not really studied in the in the sense that uh, they're gonna present something that could have chance chances to win. They did this year because I mean this year it seems that uh, uh, the UK runner-up got some kind of uh, chances and mm-hmm. uh, and apparently the the song is quite um, catchy and and also you know meeting the standards of the the Eurovision songs. Yeah, I I mean I think the situation with Brexit and the UK at Eurovision, uh, I think, is also one of the best ways to answer what can the EU learn from Eurovision kind of questions um, after Brexit. Uh, the places where some of the EU agencies that were located in the UK, um, so the way they were reallocated, uh, where they were going to move was actually, as one diplomat put it, based on the Eurovision style voting. Mm -hmm. So that's the European Banking Authority and the European Medicines Agency that had to relocate. (laughs) But I don't know if you you remember, even Germany in the in uh, 2013 uh, was uh, uh, basically uh, there was this uh, interpretation they finished uh, last uh, and there was in this interpretation uh, on the fact that uh, uh, maybe they were paying the um, politics of uh, Angela Merkel and the austerity and mm-hmm. if i remember correctly that uh, discussion was mostly based on the voting of the southern european bloc uh, that year yeah the, the, the famous pigs country that uh, slashed uh, germany with uh, no vote but even that time germany got 18 votes so <laughs> not <laughs> not zero like uh, like the uk <laughs> yeah it's 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 hard to contend with them and well, okay, but I think we've all really been, you know, like talking about like overtly political situations that have been assigned that. But I want to ask you, Gerardo, what ha- what do you think about the fact that the Latvian entry, the Eat Your Salad uh, song, uh, didn't it's... make it to the final? As Ugly Food editor, I want to hear how <laughs> does that make you feel? Is it impossible to make living and eating green sexy in Europe? Yeah, thanks for the question, because I just want to uh, stress uh, this big mistake by the European uh, citizens and, and voters, because um, <laughs> there are there's plenty of songs, uh, of course, talking about love. But in this case, we had a song talking about the farm to fork strategy of the European Commission. <laughs> yeah. It was clearly the promotion of, uh, of um, uh, meat-free uh, food products, and uh, there, there was even a verse in the song, in the lyrics, saying, uh, and, and, I, and I'm quoting here, uh, let's go organic. So there was organic, there was uh, plant-based products, there was uh, less meat consumption, every, and also other, it's actually broader than the farm to fork, it's, it's, it's including also concept of the Green Deal of the European Union, and, uh, and that's quite... Um, I mean, actually, I'm surprised that uh, also because they, they were quite confident on the stage. But uh, yeah, it's a missed opportunity for the European uh, vote. So it was like listening to the AgriFood podcast. And what other political messages did we see this year, Vlad? 
I know that unfortunately the um, the uh, agri food aspect of the Eurovision kind of fell away, but the trans European transport network strategy is still very much alive, uh, thanks to Moldova's Moldova. entry. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So for those who have not yet listened to this absolute masterpiece, it is uh, a song titled. Trenuletsu, uh, which uh, apparently stands for train, and it's about a new train line between the capital cities of uh, Moldova and Romania. That is, of course, Bucharest and uh, Chisinau in reverse order. <laughs> so, uh, you know, some interpretations have been uh, that it's, you know, it's about breaking with the Soviet past. And um, the lyrics are quite interesting. Red, let me just quickly read some out. Um, Train is running, seems is flying from one country to another, running and can't understand what's the country, where it's end. An old country, a new country wants was one now seems outland broke again joins again now seems two so be homeland it's very it's so european so unity unity guys i want to remind you that moldova just applied for eu membership and also since we are in this uh, interpretation of songs (laughs) through the lens of the eu uh, there's also the very mysterious song by the uh, by Norway, uh, "Give That Wolf a Banana," which, according to some, it's a huge metaphor of uh, the vaccine strategy. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and here I was. You see that I'm the global politics yeah. reporter. I'm like, is the wolf Putin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, it offers a lot of uh, several layers of interpretation. My interpretation is COVID and, and, and vaccine strategy, but maybe it could be also this one. Uh, yeah, but absolutely. But I just want to add this this thing is that, uh, um, of, of course, Eurovision involves songs from 40 countries. So it's uh, from over 40 countries. So it's, uh, it's quite a broad concept of Europe. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we also see um, an interest from the European Union in uh, also because they kind of share the same values of uh, you know uniting uni- united in diversity and uh, and so on. So for instance, we had this week an interview with the uh, Commissioner for Equality, Elena Dalli, uh, who basically told us that uh, um, yeah, the, the Eurovision, uh, is an undisputed element of the European shared cultural identity, and that uh, that thing could actually be quite important this year to uh, help renew the call for peace on the continent, considering again what's happening at the gates of Europe or actually in Europe um, with uh, Ukraine. So uh, there's also a lot of interest from um, from uh, the EU side. Uh, indeed, we um, the European Commission, uh, the representation of the European Commission in Italy, uh, organized. They have a stand at the Eurovision Village, but they also organized. Also, because the Europe Day 9th of May uh, was basically um, on the same week of the Eurovision, they organized a huge uh, concert uh, on Monday. Um, with again, I think it was twenty thousand uh, attendance. So uh, imagine 
Elena Dalli actually the commissioner was there so imagine 20,000 people uh, chanting the name of uh, of uh, Elena Dalli the commissioner so it was she was probably the first commissioner ever to have 20,000 yeah. people chanting her name and uh, and actually um, we asked the um, the head of the representation of the European Commission in Italy uh, Massimo Gaudina um, why it, 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 Eurovision this year is uh, matters for uh, for the European Union. Let's uh, let's hear what he has to say. This year we wanted to celebrate Europe's Day in a very special way. The Schuman Declaration came in an historic moment. These times are again historic moments for Europe, for the future of Europe, and for what is happening with the war in uh, Ukraine. So our special effort was done in a very special context, the context of the Eurovision Song Contest in Torino. And this is where the European Commission representation in Milan, together with our colleagues from the European Parliament, we have organized a strong presence of Europe at the Eurovillage accompanying the Eurovision Song Contest. We had a stand where citizens and young people could interact with our experts and get information about uh, European opportunities. But most of all, we had a, a big uh, event, a marathon called uh, Europe for Peace in the evening of May 9, where Commissioner Dalli and European Parliament Vice President Picerno introduced a series of uh, rock bands, uh, an Italian-Ukrainian rapper, the youth orchestra from uh, Ukraine, um, several participants to the official Eurovision Song Contest, and, uh, and so on. It was a marathon where the key words were peace, solidarity, and freedom. It was a huge success, 17,000 people attending and hosted in the Valentino Park in Torino, the maximum that could be hosted there. It was a big celebration, it was a moment of music, good, good vibes, and uh, colors, not to forget about the ongoing tragedy, but to send a message of unity and friendship, a message of solidarity between Europe and Ukraine in the name of music. So that, that was super uh, interesting to hear and quite relevant, especially considering that I think Europe has not been always on top of its game when it comes to these cultural events and the EU representation in them. Um, let's just remember the World Expo at uh, in Dubai this year. Uh, we didn't even have a pavilion. Uh, uh, the EU's office uh, was... Uh, uh, in like a hidden away cemented dungeon, dungeon on a, of an office building on the third floor. Um, you know, not really. And it felt like, oh, well, this, this was really an oppor missed opportunity to come in strong and invest a relatively small amount of money to, to be present at a world event that is really more about soft power and diplomacy uh, rather than, you know, hardcore politics that, as we all know, EU is not always the best at. So it's good to hear that there is clearly this kind of more, more of a realization with Eurovision. Though then again, I have to say it always makes me think, well, is it because this is being held on the European continent? Is, is this why they care more? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also true that, for instance, in the interview, Elena Dalli mentioned the recent interest eastwards. Like, I mean, it's it's quite followed in the 
countries of the enlargement. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not saying that they pursuing the integration process through the Eurovision, but uh, identity making through this kind of event, uh, it's, it's quite a value for, uh, for the European Commission. It's, it's an asset because um, it contributes in, uh, again, of course, European Union is made of policies, it's made of standards, it's made of single market. But it is also important to have the uh, the opportunity to uh, bring everyone together and uh, and uh, share these songs or or uh, cultural, um, let's say, performance. Also. Yeah. No, absolutely. But I also think it's an opportunity for even the European citizens to engage with the EU. They could do it through uh, the the Eurovision songs, if I might suggest that to anyone. Um, but, you know, um, Maneskin released a, a song outside of the context of the Eurovision, but in support of Ukraine, yeah. saying, uh, you know, uh, we're going to dance on gasoline here, just some of the lyrics. How are you sleeping at night? How do you close both your eyes? Living with all of those lives on your hands uh etc etc and then they say we're going to dance on gasoline we're gonna dance on gasoline that what can be more pertinent you know in the light of discussions yeah. on importing russian oil you know yeah yeah absolutely and uh, wrapping up let's end this with an easy question who do you think is going to win this year <laughs> so easy <laughs> Okay, well, I'm going to play it much safer, and I'll 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 say um, my favorite entry, and okay. it's okay. I'm not the one covering it in Turin, so I'm, I don't have to appear very neutral right now. Uh, this year, uh, of course, I'm rooting for Ukraine. However, if Ukraine doesn't win, I will not be sad if Serbia's entry, Constructas in Corporesano. Um, takes the first place. I am absolutely in love with that song. If anyone hasn't listened to it, guys, the first few lines are about Meghan Markle's hair. How yeah. could you not want to hear that? <laughs> Again, if I have to put my five cents on uh, on a name, I'd say Ukraine also, because even in the first semifinal, uh, when uh, they passed the, to, to the final, there was a, a standing ovation, even... Uh, in the announcement. So uh, I think that Ukraine got a lot of uh, chances to win. Uh, my favorite song is actually the Portuguese entry. I know it's completely, um, again, it doesn't meet the standard of, uh, of a Eurovision uh, song, but uh, the, in terms of harmony, it's a, it's a very uh, high quality song. Also because the, 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 the singer, uh, Maro, uh, She's actually a protege of one of my favorite musicians, uh, Jacob Collier, and uh, uh, it, it's it's actually quite evident. The uh, but but I have to say all the entries. Uh, I, I was checking the biographies of of those people. They are all, of course, young. Most of them, apart from the Bulgarian entry, uh, they <laughs> they quite young. But they all have a very strong background in music. Like they studied at Berkeley, some of them in other um, very quoted school, uh, like in London and so on. So it's it's quite a, like I mean this kind of professionism uh, is a bit of um, a new thing, let's say, uh, or at least for for in relation with Eurovision, you mean? In relation for Eurovision, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we will see that on Sunday. Thank you, Gerardo, and thank you, Vlad.
You're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractiv.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our digital brief podcast and agri-food brief podcast. Moving on a different topic, not far from the unity of the European nations, uh, the vision of French President Emmanuel Macron for a European political community. Oliver, you wrote about Macron's uh, vision. Starting from the top, what is this new European political community? That's a difficult question to, to, to answer because we don't know yet exactly. So what, what we are confronted with during Macron's speech on Monday and also his press conference in Berlin along his um, German counterpart Olaf Scholz was more of an idea, um, more of a vision. It's not like 100% clear. But what we know so far is that it's some some sort of alternative to, to enlargement. So um, the idea kind of is to, to have um, countries that share European values, to, to, to quote Macron, um, to, to move closer to the European Union in a, in a political sense. So there is some sort of political rapprochement. You could maybe call it like a, um, a second ring, of, of countries um, who are closer integrated into the European Union while fall, falling short of full membership. So that's basically what, what this idea is about. I mean, it's not completely new. There were some some suggestions and rumors beforehand that you have like some sort of alternative to, to EU enlargement or something in between, like before they would actually join, that they would already be able to participate, or even before they would reach full candidate status, that there would be something in between, like a waiting room. Could we say that this would be the step before joining the EU? Yeah, that's also not entirely clear. So, um, no, so Macron didn't exclude, for instance, the, the, the potential membership of Ukraine um, to, to the EU at some point in the future. Um, but they, they won't necessarily lead to, 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 to EU um, accession. For instance, another country Macron mentioned was the UK. You know, and as you know, the, the United Kingdom left the EU not so long ago. So they won't be that eager to join anytime, um, anytime soon. Um, so it's really about like having a platform of closer political cooperation, collaboration, also some sort of integration. At least that is my understanding. So at this point, it's everything is like a little bit unclear still um, because it's just in, in, the, the, in the making, the, the whole, whole idea and the whole process. Mm-hmm. And what would this mean for the countries that would like to participate in this new political community? Well, that's exactly the thing. So we don't know exactly what it means. And I think this is also something that has to be discussed. I think what Macron did is like really he put his idea out there. It created some positive um, feedback. Like for instance, um, while he was when he was in Berlin on Monday, um, Chancellor Scholz said that um, the approach would be really interesting. However, and that's also something that's really important with this thing because what I really um, see is that 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 um, countries that are already candidacy start uh, already have candidacy status. Let's think of um, North Macedonia, for instance that there are really um, fears that this would mean that they would, you know, that, that they, they would fall short of, of membership, that they would only be like part of this loose political community, whatever 
this political community will actually entail in the future. Um, and here it's really important to know, like especially from a German perspective, um, Germany is made it really clear if we have something like this European political community that it would not hamper in any way the accession of those countries. Um, and Scholl specifically, for instance, made the, the reference to North Macedonia, where he said um, that North Macedonia already put a lot of effort and, and a lot of strength into, into, into re-changing you know, its constitution, even the name of its country, so we can't let those um, countries down now. And why would this new European political community be important? Because, of course, the problem that we're having in the, in the, in the EU is um, the vetoes we have in foreign policy, and not, not just foreign policy, like a lot of other policy areas too. Um, so the real fear, that's also why France was um, always objecting to enlargement, was that um, we won't be able to to act as a European community if we have too many members, because then you have too many veto players in, in charge. So it could really block or um, block the ability of the European Union to act um, accordingly. Of course, at the moment, we see like an unprecedented um, sort of unity. But the more member states you have, the more... Um, the, dif- the, the more difficult it is to re- reach this, con- this um, anonymity, this consensus that it ne- is needed. So this is also something that, that was re-stressed by um, German politicians, for instance, Baerbock, uh, Foreign Minister um, Annalena Baerbock, for instance, but also the Minister of State um, for, for European Affairs, who were both saying that we need an EU reform before countries can really join, because otherwise we would just like um, decrease our ability to act as as a European Union. So this is, I think, like some some this European political community is some sort of of you know middle ground where you are aware that maybe it's hard and not really feasible at the moment to really have um, um, far-reaching EU reforms, institutional reforms, and the um, and the abolishment of veto of of, of veto powers. Um, they they try to design this, in my opinion, to this European political community to nonetheless give those countries um, uh, an avenue into the European family and into the European um, community. And finally, do you think France will try to develop further this idea during its rotating EU presidency? I mean, the clock is ticking for them. You know, the problem with France at the moment is that they it's really difficult for them to really push forward something because um, the general elections are coming up in June. So we, we don't really know, you know, um, what this will really, you know, if, if they will be able to push anything forward. And I don't think so personally, because what um, Scholz, Scholz and Macron both announced on Monday was that they will start joint um, consultations on a minister level, sort of a German, Franco-German minister council in July. So after um, after the French election, and on the top of the agenda is um, in this minister council is also the issue of this European political community because they are both really aware that or they believe that that um, change in the EU is only possible if they pull on the same string. So I think that's my um, opinion. They will first wait for for these consultations to take place and then maybe really put forward some some proposals. Well, thank you, Oliver. And our time is up for this week. 
I am Evikiori, and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, you can send an email at podcasts at youractive.com to let us know what did you like from this episode and what topic would you like to hear more on. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit youractive.com for the latest news and listen to us on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.